We're continuing to work through the Ten Commandments, but I did want to uh, draw your attention to this um, icon that's up on the screen. Does anyone know what this is? What's that? It's also called, it's just called Christ of the Sinai. Uh, this is in St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai. Uh, do you know where St. Catherine's Monastery is? This is great. It, it's in Sinai, which is in Egypt, um, but it's up on the mount where the Ten Commandments were given, um, where Moses met the burning bush. Um, in fact, they have a, a tree there that they say is the burning bush, and they keep a fire extinguisher next to it. Um, but, but this icon is kept there. Um, by the way, Dr. Fish knows a, uh, a monk who's a Texan uh, who, uh, named Father Justin, and he's the keeper of all the texts that they have in their library. Um, but this is one of the things they have. They have this icon, and it's very large. It's very tall. I'm just giving you the snippet of it so you can see. But if you look at the eyes, what do you notice about the eyes? They're red. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of that. Okay. If you take a mirror and you set it on the vertical axis, and so you can see one eye doubled over, if you see the right eye, from our perspective, his left eye, you'll see the most angry face you've ever seen in your life. It's scary. If you take the mirror and you turn it around and you see just the left side, from our perspective, right side from his, it looks like the most loving face you could imagine. Do you see what's going on here? You're seeing, you're seeing the, the, the two, um, now you don't want to quite call it two sides of Jesus, but you're seeing these two realities at once, right? Which is judgment for sin, but also great love and mercy and grace. Yes? Um, and the two go together. And so I find it very interesting that this is on Mount Sinai, right? Because this is something we often get wrong. We say, well, Jesus is opposed to the law. No, no, no. Jesus, what does Jesus do with regard to the law? He fulfills it. Not only does he fulfill it, but he's also the one who gave it, right? I mean, the church fathers are emphatic about this, that, that the law is given through Christ to Moses because he is the law giver. Um, and and uh, if you pay attention to the readings this morning, you'll, you'll hear this, uh, that we're, giving, we're, we're reading the Ten Commandments this morning, which is great. We're also reading that scene where, uh, where Jesus is with his disciples in the Gospel of Mark, and they're, they're walking through the wheat fields on the Sabbath, and he, he instructs them to eat of the wheat, right? How, how can he do this? How can he join his disciples to break the Sabbath? He's Lord of the law, right? Um, he, he, gets, he, gets, he alone gets to interpret it. Um, and that's the message that, that Mark is giving, is that Jesus alone gets to, gets to interpret the law. Um, I should say as well, though, that, that the, New the, the Christian tradition understands that it is Jesus who enables us by his Holy Spirit to keep the law. Yes? It's a really important aspect that we often get lost. We say, well, we're, you know, we're just sinners. It's impossible for us to keep these commandments. Uh, but, but in Anglicanism, I think we've got a very clear balance about this. And we say, no, no, no. The Lord gives us his grace so that we can keep the commandments, um, which, is a, which is often entirely lost in many traditions. All right. We're going to finish up this commandment on murder today. We're on page 116. I actually go over to 117. Um, and, and we'll pick up right where we left off. This is question 307. 
Is it always wrong to harm or kill another? There are rare times when the claims of justice, mercy, and life itself may require doing harm or even bringing death to others. It is the particular task of government to do this in society. Um, I think this question is going to be reworked in future editions because it's a little unclear in certain spots, but it is nonetheless true um, that the Christian tradition does actually state, and state emphatically, that there are times when, um, when, when deadly force is, is, uh, is not, well, I shouldn't say required, um, and that's the problem with require. Um, I should say that it, it's, it's possible to do so um, in a way that is, that is, it is good in a way that is uh, licit. Um, and you can think of many, uh, many, many things going on here, right? Yeah? Like if someone is shooting up a school, right? Um, like if, if someone is about to, uh, to commit a grave atrocity and, and, and kill many, um, you do have that ability um, to do this. Now, I should point this out, that this doesn't qualify as murder to do this. Why? Right, it's not planned. Although, you know, murder can be, un can doesn't have to be premeditated. But that, that is a qualifier, though. Yeah. Well, keep in mind that, that one of the things that happens when this happens is that um, is that uh, the, the life that's being taken is that of, of a combatant, um, not of someone who's, who's acting peacefully, not of someone who's, who's unarmed, right? Um, so here's another thing, and this is, this is often how we get really, really messed up. In Christianity, we have two traditions. One is a tradition of, uh, of pacifism, and the other is a tradition of, of just war. Um, and as David Corey at Baylor points out, this is a tradition, it's not a teaching, it's a tradition of thinking about how we can uh, undertake uh, violent action justly, um, and to what end. Um, and one of the things that, that the just war tradition teaches us is that, um, that the force which we use always has to be, uh, always has to meet the force that's coming against us. We can't, we can't overwhelm it. Um, and that's an important thing as well. So. Uh, an example would be that, you know, you, because someone shoots you, you can't drop a bomb on their house, right? Um, it's, it, it doesn't work. Um, and there are many qualifiers, and I can commend you to his book for that, for that instance. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that, that, um, that the church has commended in the past and, and continually does um, uh, just action um, and just action that can be lethal. Um, for the purposes of justice. Um, and that's often hard for a lot of people to understand, and, and I will just say to you if, you, if you have, if you hold to a pacifist position, well, you know, more power to you, right? Because <laughs> um, it's a venerable tradition within Christianity. Um, keep in mind that in the ancient church, uh, there were, there were uh, often requirements that Christians not be soldiers. Um, now, part of the reason was that they were taking oaths to gods, which were, which was a form of apostasy. Um, but I should say, in addition to that, they were they were be, they could potentially be forced into situations that would that would cause their faith uh, to to meet up against a conscience problem. Um, so there there's many of these things going on. Um, I should say, in addition to this, it's it's very important that um, that we as Christians go about these kinds of things with uh, a certain manner of uh, of prudence. 
meaning that uh, we can't just say, you know, any and all circumstances, I'm, I, I, am, I am capable and fully empowered to uh, pull out my, my uh, nine millimeter and shoot, shoot somebody dead. Well, that's not what we teach, just to be clear. Um, uh, what we teach is that if you have the authority to do it, um, and that's, that's a legal question, and if you have uh, the wherewithal to do it, and you, uh, and you can do so without causing uh, greater harm, and you can do so in the way that's, that's the least amount of force necessary, uh, to make the thing, to make the, to make whatever's about to happen stop, or to make what has happened stop, um, then then you're authorized to do that. Um, so I very often had uh, police officers that are their their consciences are troubled by a lot of this because <laughs> they have to ask these questions every day, and I just say, well, you're authorized, so that's not a question. You've got the law behind you. Um, you know, are you using as little force as possible to make to make to bring this to an end, and and that's all you can do. But what you're doing is you're acting to preserve life, not to take it. And that's the key. All right. Should we move on? How else can you cause life to flourish? As a witness to the gospel, I can love God and my neighbor by refraining from selfish anger, insults, and cursing, by defending the helpless and unborn, by rescuing those who damage themselves, and by helping others to prosper. It's a great witness to the gospel in every age um, to refrain from the kind of uh, anger uh, which is deadly. I mean, listen, sometimes the hardest wounds to recover from are those stabs in your back by a friend. Would you not agree with that? Um, sometimes the hardest thing to ever get over is when someone defames you publicly and you have no uh, venue in which to defend yourself. Um, it fixes that impression immediately. I was once in a situation, and this was, this was, in, this was, in, this was in another place, but where someone said something about me publicly and I had no idea until a year and a half, two years had passed. And then someone in my parish suggested that one of the reasons I was having trouble uh, making friends in the diocese was that the well had been poisoned against me. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And then she let me know all of this. You see, this was, this was the rantings of a crazy person um, who, had, who had let loose on me. Unfairly, um, but I never recovered from it. Never. Um, so it's something to keep in mind: uh, is that by by spreading rumors, by spreading insults, um, you can you can you can murder someone in such a way that they can never recover from it. Um, by defending the helpless and unborn, Christians have always understood that coming to the aid of those who cannot help themselves is is a is a is a witness to the gospel. Think about the Good Samaritan. Yes. What does the Good Samaritan do? I mean, one of the things that you, that you learn about the, the Good Samaritan, the parable of it, is that the Good Samaritan is very much like Jesus. Yes? The Good Samaritan comes to us and comes to this uh, wayward, uh, uh, left for dead by the side of the road sinner uh, and, and, and heals up his wounds, checks him into the end. Uh, pays for his care. Um, this is what Jesus does for us. And when we do it for others, we show forth the gospel. Um, defending the unborn is one of the things that, that is often uh, very difficult uh, today, especially as we have all kinds of you know, things going on in the world that, that make this more and more difficult. But I should say that uh, for, for all of Christian history, uh, Christians have, have come to the aid of the unborn and the, those, those who have been born uh, by either 
welcoming pregnant mothers into their homes. And later, you know, back in the Roman times, every, every Roman city had an exposure wall with niches cut into it where you could leave a baby and the baby would die of exposure. That was the idea. But in, in every town, there was the wailing of uh, baby voices from that wall. But when the Christians came along, what happened? No more wailing from the wall. Why? Because the Christians adopted all the babies. They just did this. Uh, so that it never, it never happened. Uh, and so adoption and foster care are incredible things that Christians can and should get involved in. Um, by rescuing those who damage themselves. Um, we have a, uh, we have a world, we have kind of a throwaway culture, don't we? Uh, where there are often people who, who are uh, self-destructive um, and we say, you need to go away. You need to be away from us, right? Don't, don't have anything to do with us. Uh, you're going to bring that evil into my house. Um, and, and the answer is, well, sometimes you can't deal with that, right? You don't have the wherewithal to deal with it. But sometimes you do. And, and sometimes the most important thing to do is just to say, you know what? You need a place to live that can be stable, that can be helpful to you, and just, you know, come on, right? Uh, my couch is available to you. Uh, my home is available to you. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Well, keep in mind, you know, every time you go into a hospital today, you're entering into an institution that has a Christian history. Um, the hospitals were constructed by the church to help those who were sick, or failing, or, uh, or, or, in, or destructive to themselves. Um, so it's something that there's a long tradition of doing this. Um, Go back. Page flipped. Um, and by helping others to prosper, you know, one of the things that we that we uh, that we have the great opportunity to do is is to, you know, instead of just offering handouts, right, or putting the poor into debt, which doesn't work, right, to help them to prosper, uh, to say, what would it take um, to see long-term prosperity take hold in your life? Um, you know, because I think one of the things that we've that we've seen, and somebody came to me, some, actually somebody came to me a couple months ago and said, you know, my neighbor needs five hundred dollars. What do I do? <laughs> He's going to lose his house if he doesn't get five hundred dollars. I said, well, uh, tell him, tell him by the end of this week you want to see five business proposals of what he would do if he had five hundred dollars, and then you'll fund it if you want, if you feel like it's something you can do, and and that's actually a great, it's a great option. You know, because if somebody could say, "Hey, if I had five hundred dollars, I'd go buy a lawnmower, and I'd go buy a gas can and a hedge trimmer, and I'd have a lawnmowing business," but I don't have that right now. Um, there are all kinds of all kinds of things that can that can be done. Um, you may look at your life and see how others have acted in such a way to help you flourish. Yes, 
you probably say, well, my parents. Well, yes, absolutely, right? But, but hopefully there are others as well. Um, I can look to several, several occasions where someone said, you know what, uh, you know, we've got a responsibility to him to make sure that he doesn't go, <laughs> that he doesn't have these kinds of long-term problems. So we're going to take care of this. And, and it's an incredible thing, an incredible gift um, to help your neighbor to prosper. And it's something I want to encourage you to because uh, very often um, we, we undertake actions that, that can be either neutral or worse, right? Um, we try to act so that our neighbor can be, can, can uh, not experience that. All right, let's move on to the seventh commandment. What is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery. What does it mean not to commit adultery? Marriage is holy. Married persons are to be faithful to their spouses as long as they both shall live. So I must not engage in sexual activity with anyone other than my spouse. Okay. So far, so good? Yes? Um, marriage is holy. Marriage is sacred. Uh, marriage is, um, is an institution not of human creation. Would you agree with that? Because here's the deal. like If, if we... Uh, we would have to be a little crazy to think up marriage on our own, wouldn't we? I mean, think about that. Does it make sense? It, it really doesn't at the end of the day. It doesn't make economic sense. It doesn't make any sense to people who consider themselves to like value freedom and things like that, or certain kinds of freedom. Um, and this idea of lifelong fidelity is an idea of sacredness anyway. Um, by the way, marriage actually doesn't help the powers that be at all. Uh, marriage doesn't help the rich. Marriage doesn't help uh, political leaders establish, uh, establish um, good governance. Um, marriage doesn't seem to help them at all. In fact, marriage is a democratizing force in this world. Because think about it. If you've got a very rich king, who gets to marry all the women? The very rich king, yes? But if you have marriage, one man, one woman, and it is pervasive throughout society, what happens? Yeah. You, you get to share the love, right? <laughs> and this is an amazing thing in society. But let's move on. Why does God ordain marriage? God ordains marriage for three important purposes. For the procreation of children to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, and for mutual friendship, help, and comfort, both in prosperity and adversity. These are the three goods of marriage as uh, first outlined by St. Augustine and later in, in throughout the Christian tradition, uh, even straight into our own prayer book and our own marriage rite. Um, we've started to uh, use the, the new ACNA marriage liturgy, which is very ably done, I should say, and, uh, and it uses these, these goods directly. Now, what are they? The first, the first is always for the procreation of children. Um, and what do we mean by that? It's very simple. Marriage exists for kids, <laughs> as, as the Hans Borsman says. Um, anytime you remove that, that, uh, that procreative good from marriage, um, there, there is fallout for it. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that people who can't have children are not really married? Not at all. Okay, not at all. What I am saying is that when they start to see the good of marriage as being only so that they can feel good about themselves and only so that they can feel fulfilled, and so there's no outward good, um, one of marriage starts to break down and get sick. Um, 
Marriage works best when man and woman are there to encourage each other and there to strengthen each other uh, for, uh, for the external tasks that they undertake in both their family and society. Uh, they love one another best when they love each other to the end of, of loving others well. Um, and so I will just tell you this, if I have a, a young, happy, engaged couple in my office and I say, so what about having kids? And they say, we don't think we're going to have kids. I'll say, well, I think you need to find another place to get married. But let's talk about that. Right? <laughs> um, let's talk about that first. Why not? Um, because the, the, the reality here is that uh, marriage um, is, is the most incredible, it, it really is, it's God's given arena uh, for children to grow up and, and to grow up well. Um, having said that, what do you do, you know? What about older people who get married and can't have children? Well, this is a really funny story. I probably told it before, but uh, one time I married a couple, and and uh, they were in their sixties, and uh, I sent them a proof of the of the marriage right, and. She sent me this rather sheepish email back, and she said, uh, I noticed there are prayers for the procreation of children, if it be God's will. And I said, could we maybe remove those? And I said, why? And she, and she said, well, I, I don't mean to be too graphic, but I had a hysterectomy three years ago. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, let's talk about that. And, and I said, listen, your grandparents already, uh, you've, you've, you have this relationship that is going to that is going to provide for multiplication in your family and in your life, uh, that's going to provide for the good of your children, uh, that's going to provide for evangelism to others, right? Let's leave it in. And she said, okay, we'll leave it in. And we did, and it was glorious. And I even preached a little bit about it and said, listen, this is, this is marriage just because you can't naturally procreate doesn't mean you can't do this in other ways. Um, married couples provide homes of hospitality uh, to the outcast. Remember what the Psalms say about, about the Lord? He takes the solitary and what? He sets them in families. Um, uh, this is an amazing thing. All right. For a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. Right? Um, this is something we've almost entirely lost, but we need to get it back, which is that you know the Christian answer for what uh, a young couple ought to do when they're finding it very hard to avoid fornication and sin is to say, well, why don't you all get married? Seriously, why don't you get married? And if there's not a good reason, why not? Then go for it. Um, I had a young couple once and they had had a baby together before they were married. And uh, I went and saw the baby in the hospital and, and uh, they had been, uh, you know, they'd been coming to catechesis for the sole purpose of like, well, what are we going to do when baby needs to be baptized? And I said, well, come to catechesis and then your baby can be baptized. And, and I was sitting there in the hospital with them and, and I said, man, guys, this is amazing. You know, you just had this baby and this baby's beautiful. And I said, so why haven't y'all gotten married? And they said to me, oh, Father, we want to get married so badly, but we, we just don't have the money. And I said, you don't need to have money to get married. Like, <laughs> I, said, I said, well, here's what we can do. And, uh, and, and they just, they looked at me like, are you crazy? And I said, well, no, listen. Like, so we had the wedding on Easter Saturday. There were Easter lilies all over the altar. Um, the mom ordered chicken from some local place they loved. And, and they had a beautiful wedding with a beautiful reception. They moved the flowers into the parish hall afterwards. And they moved them back at the end of it. And she told me the whole thing cost them thousand dollars 
and, and her grandfather was so excited about this, he paid for their honeymoon, you know? So it was just this kind of thing that was just so incredible, and they have this wonderful, beautiful family today. Why uh, do, we, uh, do we delay so long um, in these questions? Um, and I think one of the things that we've got going on today in society is we've got a later and later and later marriage age, which is causing lots of problems, and it's, and it's kind of a, a, a circular problem, right? It's, we delay marriage because of all this stuff, and because of a delayed marriage, we do all this stuff, right? Um, and so we've got, we've got a pornography crisis in America. We've got, we've got a problem of, of, uh, of people reaching well into their 30s and saying, well, I guess it's too late now. And it's, you know, the reality of it, it's never too late. It's never too late. I've known, I've known men who were celibate their whole lives and they got married at 75, you know? <laughs> it's never too late. Um, and, and what I want to say to you is that God gives us marriage uh, for our sanctification. Let me, let me say this again. God gives us marriage for our sanctification, to make us holy. And if you're finding being holy difficult, in, a, in an unmarried state because you've got no one to share your life with and you've got, and you've just got, uh, well, you've got frustrations, right? Then pray for a spouse um, and take the opportunities as they come. Um, so I want to encourage you in that direction. Um, marriage is, marriage is and, and this is part of the problem that we've had with the, with the purity culture as well. We think we have to be sexually pure in order to be a good spouse. That's not what Paul says. That's not at all what Paul says. It's not what the New Testament says. What does the New Testament say? The actually, the New Testament says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Is what Paul says. So I want to clarify that. Right? This is marriage is, and also at the same time, marriage is not a concession to our sin. So when does God give us marriage? Before the fall. Um, but the fall doesn't make marriage evil. The fall doesn't make marriage sort of. Um, second prize. Um, I want to say as well, in the time of the Reformation, uh, marriage had become a thing which was which was looked down on by many important leaders in the church. And one of the one of the one of the uh, aims of the reformers was to restore marriage as a thing of glory and goodness. Um, so that's something we have as well. And for this is the third good: mutual friendship, help, and comfort, both in prosperity and adversity. Um, one of the things that we have going on in society today is that marriage looks very much to the world around us like just a consecrated or a, or a vowed friendship. Um, it has no sexual content, and if it does, it's kind of incidental and, and, or assumed, right? It has uh, very little reference to, well, what happens when everything goes bad? Because what happens when everything goes bad? Well, we just get a divorce, and then, you know, it's all over. It's okay, we just get a divorce. Um, but what... What the church teaches us regarding marriage is that, that marriage is, is, a, is an unqualified good. It's very good. Um, and that especially in adversity, we need marriage. Um, how many of you have ever known someone who, who had cancer, right? And was marriage a help? <laughs> yeah, at you bet, right? Um, how many of you have, have endured financial strain and married? It's a huge help to not have to bear this alone. Um, and that friendship and that help and that comfort, uh, which, by the way, comfort does not mean you're going to kind of take care of me and make me comfortable. It means you're going to strengthen me. Um, and uh, 
actually, I'll just share this with you. A few days ago, Ella and I were, were, uh, were reading old letters that we used to write to each other when we got so angry we couldn't talk. We'd write emails, you know, like, I can't speak to you right now, so I'm going to write an email. <laughs> and we've read these and say, like, my goodness, we've grown up. This is incredible. Like, we would never write such stupid things anymore. Like, <laughs> so, so it is. It's amazing to look back and know that. All right. What does marriage illustrate? The New Testament reveals that human marriage is meant to reflect the faithful love that unites Christ to his church. Um, in fact, this is why we refer to the church as the bride of Christ. Um, the church is, uh, is um, the, the arena of, of covenant faithfulness to God um, and, and this ongoing enactment of, of uh, the gospel. Um, uh, and, and this is a sacramental reality, yes? What do you think you come here this morning to do? To sing some nice songs and hear some things said? God forbid, right? I mean, if, if I were the point of Sunday morning listening to me talk, I would feel very sorry for you indeed. No, we come here to feast at the Lord's table, engage in this, in this beautiful and ongoing marriage banquet, um, and upon which there's an exchange of fellowship Right? Just, as, just as in marriage the bride is constantly giving herself to her husband and the husband is constantly giving himself to her, not for their own sake, but for what? For the sake of the world around them, for the sake of their family, for the sake of their children, for the sake of their neighbors. Right? This is what happens in this church Sunday after Sunday. The church gives herself to Jesus and Jesus gives himself to the church, not for ourselves, right? Uh, but, but for the life of the world. Um, the marriage, the marriage, um, say, the nuptial um, reality of the church um, is what is what fuels evangelism. It's what fuels mission. Um, and so I want to keep this keep this constantly in mind. Right, Leslie Newbigin, that wonderful uh, scholar um, and bishop, once said, um, "The Eucharist is mission." <laughs> Because what is, what is the mission for but to bring people to communion with Jesus? You see? How is it fueled but by communion with Jesus? That's, that's, that'll, that'll, that'll preach, I think, okay? All right. Um, and this is a faithful love, and I should point this out as well. Um, the kind of love that, that Jesus has for his church is not self-interested. This is often something people really struggle with. They say, well, why else would Jesus do all this? If it wasn't for his own sake, I'm like, well, this is the thing. <laughs> when your entire identity as a person is wrapped up in being a gift of self and outpouring yourself, um, you think not of yourself, but you think of only of others. This is what Jesus does on the cross. He empties himself, he takes the form of a servant. Um, and I should point this out. In marriage, our, our most common failings are a failing of self-giving love. Yeah? It's like, well, you know, she, she just wants you to take out the trash every day. I'm like, why is that so hard? It's like, oh, I'm really tired. Okay. Okay. Got it? And? <laughs> like, like it's, it's, it's really not complicated, right? And I'm preaching myself here, okay? 
What does it mean to be faithful in marriage? To be faithful in marriage is to be exclusively devoted in heart, mind, and body to one spouse in the marriage covenant. And not just, uh, not just exclusively devoted, but exclusively devoted for life. Uh, this exclusive uh, devotion is, you know, we, we don't like to speak of exclusion, right, very often, but here in marriage we do. Um, when I married my wife, I said, I am forsaking all others. Um, I'm forsaking all other options. Um, uh, you know, uh, my, my um, you're the only one. Um, and and that's, a, that's an incredible, incredible thing. Um, okay, let's move on. Is divorce ever permitted? Although he permits divorce in some cases, God hates it. It severs what he has joined and causes immeasurable pain, suffering, and brokenness. Right. I'm going to say a couple things here, which is that you remember in, in, uh, in the Gospels, uh, Mark, Mark, and Mark chapter 10 in particular, which isn't marked out here, um, there's, a, there's a discussion which goes on between Jesus and his disciples, and, and, the, and, and the Pharisees, in fact, are asking Jesus a question. Um, you know, about divorce. And basically they're asking him, you know, Moses allowed divorce in the law. Well, what do you say? And Jesus basically says, well, it was for your hardness of heart that Moses wrote this command. Now, why is their heart hard? Would you agree that their heart is hard? Yes, of course. Right. Because, in fact, they're, uh, they're, they're quoting rabbis here. This is what's going on behind there. They're quoting rabbis, and and the one there that they seem really intent on quoting is a, is a particular rabbi who says, well, you know, if your wife turns out to not be that great a cook, well, you can divorce her and marry again. And Jesus is pointing this out. This is hardness of heart going on here. Um, this isn't practicality. This isn't anything. This is hardness of heart. And I would say to you that most of the time what happens when people get divorced, especially Christians is, but others as well, is that there's hardness of heart going on here. Um, their hearts are hardened against the other. Um, I should say this in addition. There are times, and, and I need to be very careful about this, but there are times when, um, when divorce is, is necessary in a legal sense. Um, for instance, okay? in the state of Texas, um, until you have a divorce decree in hand, the custody issues about children are never clear, and they never will be. And they can't be, in fact. So sometimes people have to protect their children by doing this. Is it good? No, it's not at all good. It's making the best of a terrible situation. Um, I should say as well that, um, that the church does not issue divorces. <laughs> uh, you know, note what you have to do when you get a divorce. Do you come to me? Well, I would hope you would beforehand, right? No, you go to the courthouse. Because it's a civil thing. It's a civil dissolution. Um, it allows you uh, to uh, separate your, uh, your, your worlds in terms of your possessions, your money, your accounting, your taxes. Um, it allows you to sever the relationship with regard to what happens with your children. Um, but it doesn't change the spiritual realities of what has happened here. Um, and so I want to I give this as a warning. You know, just because you have a divorce decree in hand does not mean that you ought to just go get remarried. That's not at all the case. 
Um, and, and I would even say that uh, that's something which has to be worked out pastorally. Um, and, uh, and, and I've got certain guidelines about that as well. And I'll share them with you, but now's not the time. I think, I think what, what Jesus says about, about divorce, that's probably most, there are two things he says that I think stand out the most to me. One is, is this, that what God has joined together, let no one rend asunder. Not man, not woman, not others. Um, and, and that's very much the case. Sometimes, I would say, it, it has already been torn apart. Um, um, in addition to that, Jesus is quite clear that um, when you divorce and marry another, um, you, you become an adulterer. Um, and when, uh, when, when a man divorces his wife unjustly and she's out on the street and she gets remarried, she's also been made to be an adulterer. Now, how do we struggle with this? What do we do about this? Because this is what Jesus says, yes? Um, and so I would, say, I would say this to you. One of the most incredible gospel witnesses that you can have um, that I've ever seen in my life is when people are, are, are forced to, to accept a divorce that they didn't want and they say, that's it. I'm, and they consider themselves to still be married, although it's a complete mess, and they do so to their life's end. Um, it's an incredible witness of faithfulness in the midst of just absolute heartbrokenness. Um, so, put that in front of you. I say everything else, deal with it pastorally, okay? <laughs> uh, because it's an, it's an, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things that happen, and there are a lot of things that, um, and well, one more thing is that uh, people often get married, and they and they have a ceremony, and and it doesn't fit the category of what Christians are talking about when we're talking about marriage, um, and therefore it, it, it can be, uh, you know, it can be healed for sure, right? That that problem can be healed, uh, but sometimes it never is. Um, so, all the more reason, and this is why I'd say this: if you want to avoid that situation. Pre-marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling, right? <laughs> I can weed that stuff out like nobody's business. <laughs> and I've done it in the past. Um, it's actually to the point where the only time I've refused to marry a couple, it's kind of incredible story, they refused, just said, I'm not doing this. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> I told them that, and it caused major problems <laughs> for me and for her dad, and like, oh my goodness. Uh, but at the end of the day, they decided we're, we're not going to do pre-marriage counseling. We're just going to get married at the Methodist Church down the road, which they were happy to do. And they had marriage trouble within a few years. It was awful. And, and, and I, I kind of watched this from afar on Facebook. It was not pretty. And, uh, but he came back from two deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, respectively. And he was suffering from PTSD. And he was... He was weeping himself to sleep at night and she thought this is over this isn't going to work he was drinking heavily and one day she met him at the door when he came home and she shoved the packet that i gave him for pre-marriage counseling in his chest and said look buddy <laughs> this is how it's going to be we're going to do everything that priest in texas told us to do and that's it and if you want to stay married that's what's going to happen and so they opened the packet together and uh he, they moved back to Texas. They got engaged in the church they were part of before. They got, they got plugged in. He went through catechesis. He, he went through this incredible conversion, was baptized, which is one of the things I was going to require of them, which they didn't want to do. And so I said, well, I'm 
campaign. <laughs> that's, that's one of the things that's going to do it. He got baptized. Uh, they now have uh, four beautiful children. They have a beautiful marriage. Uh, this guy is one of the most wonderful, uh, grace-filled men I've ever known in my life. But you see what happens, right? Pre-marriage counseling. <laughs> so, so I say, don't be afraid of pre-marriage counseling. It, it, you know, it's, it, it actually has been proven um, to, uh, to increase your chances of staying married by 80%. Can you believe that? That's amazing. And what we do is we weed out all of these problems. We say, like, oh, you know, does anybody ever, uh, and I can say this to one or the other, has anybody ever suggested to you that maybe you've got to, maybe you ought to go see a counselor about X, Y, Z? Uh, and no one ever has. Uh, so it's an amazing thing. All right, we need to move on. How else is the seventh commandment broken? Fornication, same gender sexual acts, rape, incest, pedophilia, bestiality, pornography, lust, or any other form of self-centered sexual desire and behavior all violate this law. Okay. Are we clear enough? Why list all that stuff? Because we got to. Um, there are people who make, who make all kinds of uh, rationales for these things. But here's the thing, friends. God does not give us sex so that we can feel fulfilled. That's a side benefit. Um, he gives it to us, hey, look back, for the procreation of children, right? To avoid fornication. Um, and to, in fact, encourage this mutual friendship um, and, and, and help and comfort within the, within the confines of marriage. Um, very often, and our culture has really, really gone completely off the deep end on this, sex is all about self-gratification. It has, it has virtually no other end but that. And in the Christian tradition, sex is about, uh, is about gratification of the other's desires, uh, but it's more than that. It's about a gift of self for the good of the other. Um, and that's got to be said. And all these things, all the problem is that they either, and I will say this clearly, they take procreation off the table entirely. Got it? Okay. That's, that's the problem with same sex, with same gender sex. It, it has no end other than itself. It turns in on itself. Um, and it, it becomes sick because of this. Um, does any rapist set out to conceive children? No, it's all about gratification of the self. Um, so I want to say that just clearly and, and unequivocally. What does it mean for you to be chaste? It means that I must refrain from sexual acts outside of marriage, and I must respect myself and all others in body, mind, and spirit, practice sexual purity, and view others as image bearers of God and not as objects of personal gratification. Chastity is not only for those who are not married uh, in the Christian tradition. Chastity is for all Christians. Why? Okay. This is often the problem in the purity culture. It's, well, once you get married, everything's on the table. I mean, you can do everything you want. It's like, it's a free-for-all for the, for the gratification of your desires. Isn't that wonderful? It's like, no, not, it's not wonderful at all. That's horrible. Right? Uh, what we're basically saying is that marriage looks very much like a, an adulterous, fornicating relationship just with a marriage stamp on it. And what good is that? Catch my drift? Okay. Am I clear enough? Okay. This is the problem, friends. Chastity is for all Christians. And what does it do? Well, it teaches us something. It teaches us how to view others um, 
as the image bearers of God and not as objects for my own gratification. And in marriage, this is what a man is taught about his wife. She is an image bearer of God to him and not an object of his gratification. And the same is true of the husband, yes? He's not just there to make you feel good about yourself. Um, He's there to be a a bearer of the image of God to you. Um, John Paul II, who is the great, uh, great theologian of the body in the last century, wrote about chastity in immense detail. And one of the things that he says that I think is so helpful is he says that chastity is is an apprenticeship in self-mastery. Isn't that wonderful? Chastity is an apprenticeship in self-mastery. What he means by that is that by practicing this um, sexual continence, by practicing uh, sexual morality, not just sexual morality, but but to practice self-donation, we learn how to be masters of ourselves. And we learn how to be in the driver's seat of our bodies. Now, do you ever do you feel like you're in the driver's seat of your body all the time? You don't have to raise your hand. Well, no, right? No. Um, this is what sin is. Right? We don't feel like we're in control. But John Paul II says, you know, you practice chastity so you can have this mastery of yourself. One of the things that he also draws attention to is that chastity provides uh, an arena within which we learn to be good friends. That friendship is essential. Um, and I think one of the things that we've seen in a, in, a, in a sexually licentious culture is the almost total loss of friendship. Have you noticed that? Well, think about it. A hundred years ago, it was very normal to see two men walking down the street holding hands. Sixty years ago, it was. I mean, talk to any World War II vet about their experiences in combat. You'll think, yeah, that sounds a little strange. And they'll say, no, we were buddies. It had nothing to do with that. Um, and what they're, what they're meaning to say is very clear, and I'm going I'm to wrap this up. But it's that they have a friendship in which they're not seeking gratification. They're seeking some other end. They're seeking to honor each other. Um, and they've been raised in a culture of honor which permits this to happen. They've been raised in such a way as to not take advantage of each other. And one of the real disasters that we've had today is that it's, it's very difficult for men and women to be friends with each other. Have you noticed that? Um, we, we almost can't have it, really. We don't have a, we don't have a way to think about this. Um, and so what often happens is we say to, especially, and this happens with men and women, but it's, Oh, well, you can't possibly be friends. There's got to be some other angle here. And so what we do is we say, well, you know, whatever this is, it's not friendship. It can't be. That's impossible. It's impossible for two women to be friends like that. Um, but, but what chastity teaches us is enables us to have that friendship. And so one of the things I mourn with the culture going the way it has is that we don't know how to be friends to each other anymore. We're losing that ability. Um, the kinds of friendships which young men in particular used to have on a regular basis and all the time that fed them, that formed them, that made them who they are, they don't have those friendships anymore. And it's a disaster. Um, the kind of intimacy which they crave, which they need, um, in order to sustain chastity, they don't have. And so no wonder they turn to pornography. Um, no wonder they turn to sexual gratification to get intimacy needs met. Because they don't have friendship. 
And then, and I'm going to say this as clearly as I can, and then no wonder they shoot up schools. Because they feel, they feel this loss of friendship violently. It's a violent loss. Um, it's something which they know they should have, but they don't know how to have it without it becoming gay. Um, so that's all I've got on that. But, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a big thing going on here. Later marriage age plus, uh, plus a total loss of stability in the family because of marriage breaking down and the total loss of friendship that comes with that is a disaster for our culture. And it's one of the things where the church needs to model a restoration of the place of marriage. We can't just simply say, oh, but we're, we're not doing all the other things that people are doing with marriage in the society, so we're okay. No, we have to restore it to its place, uh, meaning that Christian marriage has to look different. Um, and what does it have to look like? It has to look like the cross. That's all for today. <laughs>